Hey, welcome again. If you want to pull out your Bible, our passage for today is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Uh, you may have noticed for the last couple of months, I'm, I haven't brought any scriptures on the screen with me, and, and that has been something we've done historically, but it's a strategic choice that, that I've made because I really, really do want you to be able to open up a Bible and look at it, whether it's a physical copy of the Bible, which by the way, if you don't have one of those, we'd love to give you one. Uh, we have a stack out in the lobby or electronic. doesn't really matter. I don't think it matters to Jesus. shouldn't matter to us. But the reason I want you looking at whatever we're teaching here is because when you have to answer the faith's deepest and hardest questions, I won't be there with you. I I wish that I could be there with you, helping you walk through these things. But the truth is, is I can't be there with you. And my hope is that through teaching week after week after week after week, if you and I are looking at the scripture together, you would be able to see the things that I'm able to see, because I don't know if you know this, but I am just a regular person. Um, uh, God does not appear in my office every morning the way he did to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, So if I can see it, then you can see it. And that way, when you are wrestling through some of the faith's and life's deepest and most difficult questions, you would be able to open up the scripture and you would be able to uh, meet God there yourself. And so that's why I'm not bringing any scriptures with me lately, uh, but want you to see it for yourself. Again, today's passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. As I mentioned last week, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, his true son in the faith. Paul didn't have biological children. Timothy was as close to a biological son as Paul ever came. He was more than just a a young man, though. Timothy was a great pastor and leader in his own right. In fact, Timothy was probably in charge of not just one church, but many churches. But now he's going through a a real difficulty. He's experiencing opposition from inside the church. He's experiencing opposition from outside the church. And he may be wavering on his own faith that he learned from the Apostle Paul. And so this letter is to encourage Paul. Paul is in prison. Uh, These are going to be his last words, essentially. He says at the end of this letter, I am a cup being poured out as a drink offering. I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race. Paul knows this is the end for him, but he's writing these letters, this letter to encourage Timothy because it should not be the end for Timothy. And he says in verse eight, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Now that seems like a ridiculous thing to have to remind a pastor. Remember Jesus Christ. I mean, you would think that a pastor would just be thinking about Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They got their headphones while they're asleep, which is Jesus going, Jesus, 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 right? But Paul says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, because it's easy to forget him. It's easy to forget him if you're a banker. It's easy to forget him if you're in oil and gas. It's easy to forget him if you're a teacher. It's easy to forget him if you're a pastor, 
It's easy to forget them if you're at church. That's why here we have three sentences that matter to us. The very first one, and first in importance, we want to be a church with a radical focus on Jesus. Because often in a church and in the life of a follower of Jesus, the first thing to get pushed to the side is Jesus. He says, remember Jesus Christ. I remember very distinctly Amanda and I's first days of young love. You know, the puppy dog annoying kind. It's annoying to everybody but the two people who are in it, right? And I knew within a week this was the, f- the person I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. I'm grateful that she came a- around two years later. No, I'm just kidding. No. No, she fell in love first because of my charm and winsomeness. But in those early days of, of love, if you remember, I mean, just thinking about that person just all the time. Everything that you do, you, you, you think about them. And then after that new love wears off, you have something even deeper and richer, um, committed love. So now if you're married, you think about your spouse in everything that you do because nothing you do just affects you anymore. You you, you go to work early, it affects your spouse. You stay at work late, it affects your spouse. You have to run errands on the way home. You filter that through, uh, what do I need to do for my spouse? I I need to communicate this. You you have a bucket list. Uh, That bucket list is not just for you. It's for you and your spouse When you are committed to somebody, you think about them constantly. And Paul is reminding Timothy, remember Jesus. Because the more often and more clearly we think about Jesus, the more faithful we will be. Remember years ago when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out? A vivid presentation of the last few hours of Jesus' life. If you watch that movie and after it was over, somebody said, you need to go to China and be a missionary. If there was ever a time in your life where you were willing to say yes to that, it was right after you watched that movie. If somebody ever quoted the words of Jesus to you, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. The only time you would actually consider doing that is right after you watch that movie. Why? Because you've just seen Jesus clearly. With your own eyes, see his sacrifice, see his depth of commitment to us, see his love, see his power, see his gentleness, see his authority. The more often and more clearly we think about Jesus, the more faithful we're going to be. That's why Paul tells Timothy, experiencing opposition, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the anchor of our faith. In fact, the Apostle Paul in a different place said, if Jesus has not been raised, this is all foolishness. If you have never studied for yourself with history and reason, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, I want, you to, I want to encourage you to drop everything else that you are doing and study that. Research that. Not just from a spiritual perspective, but a historical perspective. Because once you nail down your belief that Jesus of Nazareth in the first century was alive, was crucified, and was resurrected, it solidifies every other aspect of your faith. Because when you are having those doubts that we mentioned earlier, All you have to do is ask yourself, do I believe that Jesus was alive, dead, and alive again? Do I believe that he was resurrected? And if you believe that, then you are going to believe his words because he said that's exactly what was going to happen. 
If you believe that, then you're going to believe the words of the first apostles, his disciples, because they said, this is what Jesus said, and this is what we did after. It lends credibility to the rest of the scripture. So I want to encourage you that if you cannot say with a lot of confidence that you specifically know that Jesus has been raised from the dead, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, even if you've grown up in church, I want to encourage you to stop everything else that you're doing and nail that down because once that is nailed down, everything is nailed down. doesn't mean everything gets easier, but everything will find its place in your faith. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. There are many different world religions that have a Jesus-like figure, uh, a savior, uh, someone who uh, sp- spoke some words, and because they spoke words, uh, then, then now they have a lot of followers. Um, there are lots of Jesus-like, Christ-like figures in other religions, but what makes Jesus unique is that Jesus was predicted. Uh, those other religions, uh, someone just showed up. They, they, they had a vision. And then they went and told everybody, I've had this vision, now follow me. Or they went and had an experience. And then they left and told everybody, I've had this experience, now come and follow me. But with Jesus, he was predicted. It says that Jesus is a descendant of David. Uh, If you've been reading along the scripture with us uh, since the beginning of the year, uh, you may remember at the end of Genesis, uh, Jacob blessed his many, many sons. Well, he blessed some of his sons. He cursed some of his sons, which is actually a weird father move. Uh, but, uh, But that's what he did. And one of the sons that he blessed was Judah. And he said to Judah, his son, from you and your descendants will come kings. And sure enough, that's what happened. Uh, David, the legendary king of Israel, was a descendant of Judah. God made a promise to David. One of your descendants is going to sit on the throne of Israel, not just for one generation or a few generations, but for generation after generation after generation forever. So when Paul says, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, a descendant of David, it is reminding us that Jesus didn't just appear out of nowhere with a lot of wisdom from heaven. He was predicted because after God made that promise to David, prophets came along like Isaiah and affirmed it. A a descendant of Jesse, who was David's father, is going to do this. Other prophets came along and said that this Messiah, Savior, would be born in Bethlehem, just like Jesus had done. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us how Jesus was going to suffer. And we see that in his life and on the cross. So when we read risen from the dead and a descendant of David, it, it it affirms our faith. Jesus didn't just appear out of, out of nowhere, out of thin air, and now we're just trusting him. He was God's plan all along. And Paul says, this is the gospel that I preached. At the end of verse 8. He says to Timothy, you've heard this. My gospel is Jesus risen from the dead, fulfilling prophecies. It's not a gospel of self-help. It's not a gospel... If you believe this, everything gets better. It's not a gospel just of how to get to heaven. It is Jesus resurrected from the dead, a descendant of David. Verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. 
If you remember from the last few weeks, there were two stories going around about the Apostle Paul, why he was in prison writing this letter. Story number one was from Paul, just as he's mentioned here. I'm suffering because of the gospel that I've preached. I've preached this and it's an offensive message. Jesus is Lord. In the Roman Empire, Caesar is Lord. Right? Jesus is a gospel for all people, not just the powerful people. Well, powerful people don't want to hear that. They want to hear things that affirm their power. Paul says, this is why I've been thrown into prison because I've been faithful to God. The other stories that were being told about Paul were a little bit different. Uh, Paul is in prison, not because of Jesus. Paul is in prison because he doesn't know how to dial it down. Uh, Paul is in prison because he's too serious all the time. Uh, Paul is in prison because he's too abrasive. Uh, even uh, chapter one mentions two people, uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes. These were two people who were stirring up these other stories about Paul. Uh, they probably were even saying, uh, you know, you can't trust Paul because Paul ended up in prison. If Paul were doing the will of God, God would protect him from that kind of suffering. But Paul says to Timothy, no, 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 no. There is one true story. I am in prison because of what I preach. Not because of any other reason, but because of the message of Jesus that I am preaching. He says, I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. So you can picture Paul being chained up there in a prison cell, but him saying the word of God, the will of God revealed in the pages of scripture and most clearly in the gospel of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and return. I may be in prison, but this message is not in prison. I may be locked up right now, but this message cannot be locked up. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he'll go on to write in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that the word of God is living and active, and it is sharp like a double-edged sword. I would guess that when most of us think about God, we think of him as some glorified hall monitor. Did you have these teachers in, in school where they would just stand outside their classroom and just get people in trouble? Stop making out, you know. Why are you late? Why are you wearing that? It's against the dress code. That's all they're doing. They weren't doing nothing except for getting people in trouble. And, and I think a lot of people view God like that. He's up in heaven. He's got the best vantage point of all. He's looking down on us, seeing everything we do, saying that's against the code. It's a violation. Go to the principal's office, which is me. But God is not a hall monitor. God has an agenda. God has work to do. God has a purpose a purpose that he is always accomplishing. So we do him a great injustice when we think the only thing that he has to do is get on to me. The scripture says that his word is not bound. It is always working. It, According to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, it never comes back having unfulfilled its purpose. When most of us think about obeying God, communicating the gospel, talking to somebody about Jesus, inviting them to church, we assume failure. 
We assume it's going to be a disaster. We assume they're going to get mad at us for even having brought it up. We assume that they're going to spit in our face and reject us. Or if they don't actually do that, that's what they wish they would have done. But they have better manners than that. We assume it's going to be awful. But the scripture would tell us it's actually the opposite of that. We should be assuming success. Of course we should be talking about Jesus. Why? Because his word is not bound. It's out there free to do whatever God wants it to do. So why would I not cooperate with it? Why would I not work with it? Why would I not step out in faith? Because it's going to accomplish its end result. It may not look immediately the way that I hope it would look. But God's word never comes back unsuccessful. It's not bound up and chained up like Paul is. Verse 10. Therefore, because God is at work and his word cannot be bound, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now the word elect is a New Testament version of the Old Testament word, God's chosen people. In Genesis chapter 12, God chose Abraham out of obscurity. Abraham was not a uh, follower of the one true God. Most likely he worshiped lots of different gods just as his ancestors had done before him. But God, for some reason, in his sovereignty, chose Abraham and said to Abraham, if you'll leave your father's house and the place that you live and you come and follow me on this adventure, I'm not telling you where we're going, but if you'll just obey me, I'm gonna make you the beginning of a great nation. I'm gonna make you the father of many people. So many people that They'll be like sand on the seashore and they'll be like the stars in the sky. And Abraham does. And that's where the people of Israel come from. In Exodus, God reaffirms that with not just one person now, but with an entire nation on Mount Sinai. God makes a covenant with Israel. I'm your God and you are my people. And that's how God treats them. Now, God cares about everyone, of course. I've, I've talked to you before about imagining when Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States, he was also the mayor of Houston. I'm not even sure if Houston existed back then, but go with me, right? Imagine what it would have been like to be a Houstonian to say, the president, who's in charge of everybody? He specifically and intentionally looks out for our city. That's the way God treated Israel. God loves everybody. God's in charge of everybody. God's meeting the needs of everybody. But he had a special relationship with Israel because through that people, he could demonstrate to us, those on the outside, what he's like, how he loves, how he cares, how he provides, how he corrects, but how he guides. And when Jesus came, Jesus flung open the doors of the kingdom of God. Invitation didn't just go out to people who were born in a specific nation, but now to people from all tribes, all tongues, all nations, and all people groups. But here it says that we are the elect. We are God's chosen people. And so if you're a thinking person, you're like, okay, well, I'm glad I'm chosen. Ephesians chapter one, verse four says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I'm glad that I'm chosen, but are there people that God doesn't choose? Are there people that God intentionally keeps out? Second Peter chapter three tells us that God doesn't want anybody to perish. But he wants everyone to come to faith. So which is it? Is it that God is welcoming everybody or God has a chosen people? Right? And we put our thinking caps on and we try to see how those two things work together. 
but they, they can't work at the same time. How can God have a chosen people and want everybody to be a part of his chosen people? And what we do is we try to reason it out and we find ourselves drifting to one side or the other. It's good news that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world because what that says to us, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is that God didn't pick us because of what we do. Long before you and I started trying to perform for God, he already said, I want you to be a son or I want you to be a daughter. It's good news for us. It's also good news that God's door is open for everybody. So you can see, even now, yourself drifting to one side or the other. But thank God for Isaiah chapter 55, which says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And his ways are higher than our ways. So in our minds, they can't exist at the same time. But in God's mind, they exist fine together. And here at our church, if it says it in the scripture, we believe it. If it says that we're the elect, God's chosen people, we believe it. If it says that God has opened his door for everybody, we believe that too. And we'll let him work out how they all fit together. And Paul says, this is who I suffer for. I suffer for the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. When I was uh, in my middle school years is when I decided to become a follower of Jesus. I had grown up in church, but that was the moment where I was able to say for myself, with as much faith as I had in those years, I believe in Jesus. And so that's when I was saved. But the scripture also tells us that I'm being saved right now in the present. And Paul says here that I'm going to be saved in the future. It's in the past, it's in the present, and it's in the future. It's all. I have been saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. When Jesus returns, all of us are going to receive the full benefits of the salvation that we have been given in Christ. And Paul says, I am in it for those people. I am in it for people to believe and receive all that God has done for them in Jesus. So let the suffering come to me. That was Paul's attitude. Of course, I will sit in prison if it means more people can come to Jesus. What would you not be willing to sacrifice if someone else's faith was hanging in the balance? What are the fences around your life that you would draw and say to God off limits? Now, we wouldn't admit that here at church, but for real, what are they? I wouldn't, I wouldn't give that up. If someone's faith was hanging in the balance, what would you still keep for yourself? For, for most of us, I think it revolves around three things. It revolves around time, money, and my plans. Just thinking about my own life personally, time, money, and my plans. These are the things that I want to accomplish. But God has made arrangements for all three of those things that would encourage us to sacrifice now according to time he has given us eternal life. We have all the time in the world, literally. Money, 
he says, if you will sacrifice, sacrifice now, you'll be rewarded forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I'm not an investment banker, but that sounds like a good investment. And my plans. If you have good plans for yourself, imagine how much better God's plans are for you. If you have good plans for your children, how much more is God able to plan for his children? In fact, he says, Jeremiah chapter 29, that his plans are good. They are not to harm us. They are for us to prosper. So we should be willing to sacrifice now because of what God has promised for us. And that's what the apostle Paul is saying is I will suffer now for the sake of these people that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Super Bowl is today, obviously. It has hurt my feelings that none of you have invited me to your parties. I'll be giving out my email address later. I'm busy though, just but don't worry about it. And they may let us in to the pregame speeches. Sometimes they do that. And I promise you, in some locker room in Atlanta, Georgia, either a player or a coach is going to get in front of the team and going to talk about eternal glory. What we do today, they will remember us forever. You can hear the music in the background. Mm, Let's get out there and then wait an hour for the game to start. This is real eternal glory. This is the glory that is in Christ Jesus, which he shares with us, which leads us to verse 11. This saying is trustworthy. So this was something that the Apostle Paul and other Christians were probably saying all the time. This was not the first time that Timothy had heard it. What he's saying to Timothy is, you know what I say, right? If we have died with him, we will also live with him. This is a a beautiful picture of what Romans chapter six connects to our baptism. That's why you should be baptized. If you've never been baptized after you've decided to place your faith in Jesus, this phrase right here is why you should do it. Because when you go under the water, what you are saying is I am with Christ in his death. Because God chose us to be in his family before the foundation of the world, when Christ died, you were there with him. You were in him at that time. So when he died, you and I were also dying to the powers of sin and death and hell. So when we go under the water, it's just like Jesus went in to the grave. And when we come up out of the water in our baptism, it is as Jesus was being resurrected from the dead. If we died with him, now we live with him. So when you decided to follow Jesus, whether you were in middle school or that was a decision that you made this week, it was not just a mental decision based on different faiths. You decided that you didn't believe in atheism. Now you've gone to Barnes and Noble and you've done a lot of studying and you've picked a religion that suits best for you. It wasn't just simply a mental decision. The Bible says that when you believed in Jesus, something eternal happened to you. Something invisible and powerful and supernatural. You were dead 
with Christ, now you've been raised with Christ. Second Corinthians says that we are now a new creation in him. The old has gone, something new has been born. If we died with him, we will also live with him. Verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So Paul says to Timothy, keep in the fight, keep in the race, don't give up because if you endure, you will reign with Jesus. What does it mean to reign with Jesus? Well, you remember when the Astros won? We reigned with the Astros. That night after they clinched, we went to Academy and we waited in massive long lines for World Series swag. Hundreds of thousands of people went to the parade to celebrate. When we talked to people who don't live in Houston, even if we're not baseball fans, we talked about the Astros. We were proud of the Astros. We were faking their names like we had followed along all season and knew their batting averages. And hello, we didn't. But that didn't stop us with, uh, from celebrating with them. Right? Their victory was our victory. So how much more when Jesus comes to claim his victory? We're just going to get swept up in it but not just simply as watchers, but as participants. We're going to reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That doesn't sound very much like Jesus, does it? I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Uh, Pastors like me don't preach verses like these because they're awkward. We want you to come back next week. Then if you say things like this, no one wants to come back. Jesus gentle and mild is is a little bit more appealing than Jesus harsh and truthful. And so we skip verses like this. But but this is actually a, a paraphrase of something that Jesus said himself. This isn't just the Apostle Paul's opinion. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with holy angels. So Jesus told his followers then, the spirit of God through the word of God is telling us now, don't deny Jesus. Now denying Jesus isn't I made a mistake. It's I've thought about it. And I have decided, I do not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead any longer. And I do not believe that he is Lord. And and this is a warning light for us in the scripture. God places a few of those throughout. Because when a parent warns their child, the parent does it because they know what's on the other side of this bad decision. And, And the warning light in 2 Timothy here is... God may let you make that decision to decide that Jesus is not Lord and that he has not been risen from the dead. Warning light, God may respect your decision. So don't deny him. As I mentioned, the Apostle Paul has already mentioned two people in the previous paragraphs who did this, Phygelus and Hermogenes. So this isn't just a religious theory. He's saying these two have not just turned their back on me. They have denied Jesus. And the consequences are high. And then he goes to verse 13. If we are faithless. Now he set us up. 
If we endure with him, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, we just immensely read, he will be faithless. But that's not what God does. He remains faithful, it says, for he cannot deny himself. Our actions, no matter what they are, never make God act out of character. Our actions don't make our Father in heaven act out of character. Now, here on earth, our kids can make us crazy. Our kids know how to stick their fingers underneath our ribs and push a button in us that make us act like different people. We are normally gentle and calm. They can turn us into rage monsters. The Incredible Hulk. We didn't know we had an Incredible Hulk in us until our kids got to about age four and they willfully disobeyed us. It's one thing to disobey us because their brains are super small. It's another thing when they look at you in the eye and do it anyway. They push that button in us that make us into different people. I mean, if you think about it, the, the most embarrassed of how you have acted in this world, I bet happened with your kids. No, just me. So it would make sense if the saying was, if we're faithful, then God flies off the handle. If we're faithless, he'll fly off the handle and he'll be faithless to us. But that's not what it says. It says, even if we're faithless, he's going to be faithful because that's who he is. That's who he is always. Which is great news because if we or someone we love has denied Christ recently... We have hope that it can just be a temporary thing like Peter. Remember Peter? Lead disciple of Jesus. Denied Jesus three times and then he came back. Remember the prodigal son? Left home. Then he turned around and came home. So if we today or someone we love is flirting with denying Jesus and flirting with faithlessness, we get to pray for them. Because God is faithful. Even if they have turned their back on him, he does not turn his back on them because that's who he is. Yesterday, our daughter Annabeth had a dance competition south of town and her and Amanda were there all day. And and so me and Jackson, who's 13, and Willa, who's three, came to see one of the dances but uh you know they don't map the times out and and so we got a little behind and we were we were maybe going to miss her dance and we were driving across town and to have missed it and only asked like last like three minutes right so there's not a huge window uh, was going to be super disappointing and so i'm uh going the speed limit of course because of <laughs> laws and etc and as we pull into the parking lot of the event center, Amanda texts me and she says, if you're here, get in here. They're getting on the stage. And so I swoop Willa up, who is three, but like an older three. So not a light three anymore. A I'm growing three in my arms. And we were, it was the middle of the day. So the parking lot was packed far away as possible. And we start sprinting to the door. And she's yelling at me, put me down, put me down, because she's terrified. And so she grabs onto my neck. She's holding tightly to me because she's afraid that I'm going to drop her as we're running. And I almost had a heart attack, by the way. I'm super out of shape. Got to the front door, thought I was dying, toughed it out, went in anyway. And we made it, thank God. You'd think that would push me to exercise. It's not going to. It's not. It's not. I'm not going to go to McDonald's this week. That's how I'm going to do it. Right. 
If you asked Willa, you can't because she's three. But if you could, what was keeping her in my hands, she might have told you because I held on tight. But what we know is I had her. Even if she had let go, I'm the one who was holding her. You can read these passages and think, man, oh my gosh, I I gotta be perfect. And if I'm not perfect, if I let go, God will just drop me. But he is faithful. He's the one. And just like Willa's little arms pale in comparison to my full grown arms, how much greater is God's strength to hold us compared to our strength to hold him? That's why Paul says in the very first verse of this chapter, chapter two, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be filled with strength, not because of your puny arms, but because how God has held us. Paul says, remember Jesus and be faithful because the stakes are high. Be faithful because the reward is great and be faithful because God is faithful. Let's pray.